All right, we are in the book of Colossians chapter 1. We're actually moving on to a new passage this week, yes. <laughs> Starting in verse 15. He, this is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that you have given it to us, that your word is spirit-inspired. It is God-breathed. We have before us the very words of you. Thank you, Lord, for giving them to us, every single book, all 66 of them, every single word, every single uh, jot and tittle, Lord. And Lord, I pray now that we would receive your word, we would truly receive it, that it would be planted in our heart and it would bear much fruit. You are gracious, Lord, to us time and time again. Thank you for being gracious in the past. We thank you, Lord, that you will continue to be gracious, that you are a gracious God who walks with us uh, through the tough times, who walks with us through the joyous times. You are always with us, God, and we thank you, Lord, that you are very near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the passage that we're looking at today extols and expounds on how great and exalted Jesus is. And these six verses truly bring us to the loftiest of heights regarding the person and work of Jesus. Sometimes you'll hear skeptics argue that the early Christians didn't believe Jesus was God, or it wasn't until one of the church councils in the fourth century that the church decided to believe Jesus was God, and on and on these arguments go. Um, I, I'm not sure that these people that make these arguments have ever truly read a passage like this in the scripture. I'm just being honest. Uh, this passage alone should lay any doubt to rest about the nature and being of Jesus. You, you can't read this and think to yourself, uh, man, he, he's merely a, a good guy. He's merely uh, a nice, wise teacher. I mean, you, you can't read that, this and think that. So you can, you can say you don't believe Jesus is God. I mean, that's between you and God. But you can't read this and, and walk away thinking that the scriptures don't clearly show, just in this one passage alone, that Jesus is God. That's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. It's interesting because... Um, a cult like the Jehovah Witnesses, they realize what's at stake in this passage. And so in their translation, they add the word other six times. Six times, because they want to they 
argue that Jesus is a created being. They don't want us to think that Jesus is God. So they actually insert the word other. It's not there in any manuscript of the Greek in any way. Out of the literally thousands of manuscripts that we have in the Greek, there's no other doesn't ever appear. So they're inserting it, truly twisting scripture and, and committing an eisegesis. They're reading something into the text, and they're not even reading into it. They're just putting it there. But here's the thing, leading up to verse 15, look at, look at how the scriptures show us the prominence and preeminence of Christ in verses 13 and 14. I know we've been reading it for a few weeks, but look back at verse 13. It says, he, that, talking about the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Look at this high view of Jesus. Like, whose kingdom is it? Whose kingdom is it? Right? It's Jesus. It's the beloved son. Well, I mean, obviously Jesus' kingdom and the Father's kingdom are the same kingdom, right? But here, the scriptures give attribute to this kingdom being Jesus. It's his kingdom. So highly exalted is Jesus that it's, it's entirely appropriate to call the heavenly kingdom Jesus' kingdom. Now, now, would you just describe that if we were just talking about a man? I mean, that'd be blasphemy. That'd be heresy. But so highly exalted is Jesus that calling it his kingdom is entirely appropriate. Listen, you couldn't speak more highly of Jesus if you tried. You really couldn't. This passage, you couldn't, you couldn't speak any more highly of him if we wanted to try to add words, right? The only thing you would do by trying to do something like that is you'd actually subtract from the greatness of who Christ is in this passage. And the Father, as we see in verses 13 and 14, what does he do? He takes us by the hand and he brings us into his son's kingdom. But we're just getting started because that leads us to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. So God is invisible, no one doubts that. The scriptures show it and confirm it. God is invisible. But what does Jesus come and do? He reveals the Father. He reveals who the Father is. Look at Matthew. Keep your place in Colossians. We'll be coming back. But look at Matthew chapter 11. Starting in verse 25, Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I mean, those are big words to speak, right? No one knows the Father except the Son, so only Jesus knows the Father and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You want to know the Father? That's going to come from Jesus choosing to reveal him to you. That's what it's saying. So he reveals the Father to us. I mean, that's power, prestige, and privilege given to the Son here. He's the revealer of the Father. 
And what does it say in John 1.18? No one has ever seen God, right? God is invisible. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. And some versions uh, say the only son. My version actually says the only God. There's actually good uh, manuscript evidence for it. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So again, the son becomes incarnate. He takes on flesh. And what does he do? He reveals the Father. He reveals the will of the Father. He reveals who the Father is. Jesus makes, listen to this, Jesus makes the invisible visible. That's going to help us when we're talking back in Colossians about him being the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes the invisible visible. Look at John 14. We'll see a similar thought. So in verse 6, we get the well-known verse where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then going on in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen me. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus equates knowing him with knowing the Father and knowing the Father with knowing him. If you want to really know the Father, you have to know the Son. And if you know the Son, then you know the Father. They have this this a relationship of sorts that is very deep and intimate, and they are on the same level. Look what he says going further. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Whoever seen me has seen the Father. This is blasphemy. Unless Jesus is God. It's blasphemy unless it's true. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus himself, his own words, puts him on the level with God. But the Father also thinks highly of his Son. Notice even here, In Colossians, the descriptor regarding the term son, he uses, it's the beloved son. And and that's a term that we see in the Gospels a few times. So he claims him as his son. Look at Psalm chapter 2. We have what's called a messianic psalm. It's talking here about Jesus. In verse 1, why do the nations rage, Psalm 2, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So he claims the son as his own. You are my son. And he goes on even more. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the idea, I mean, with kiss the Son, honor him for who he is. Recognize and acknowledge his greatness. What can he do? Well, his wrath is quickly kindled. Well, notice earlier in verse 5, then it says he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them. I mean, there's wrath going on here. Why? Because there's rebellion. And the kingdoms of the earth have set themselves against God, it says, and his anointed. So what happens? Well, wrath is poured out if you rebel against God. So he's urging the people here, kiss the son. Like, acknowledge him. Know him. Come to him. Take refuge in him. That's a position of prominence that he gives to his son. He also commits to protect the son. Look at Psalm 91. This this passage is used in the temptation with Jesus in the wilderness by the devil. Psalm 91, 11, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What do we learn? He commits to protect the son. He values the son. He commits to protect him. But notice what else he does. He calls him a beloved son here in Colossians, but he also calls him that in Matthew chapter 3. Look at Matthew. This is the baptism of Jesus, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I mean, here you have the triune God seen in, in, in each of the persons here, right? The Spirit of God descending like a dove, the voice from heaven, and Jesus himself having just been baptized. All three of them right here. And what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He praises the Son. He takes delight in the Son. Notice further in Matthew 17, we're going to see that he commands obedience to the Son. This is the transfiguration. Verse 1, Matthew 17, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold... A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
listen to him. So it, it harkens back to the baptism of Jesus, but here's the transfiguration. And now something else is added. Listen to him. So he commands obedience to the Son. And what's the obedience? Well, I mean, Jesus says over and over, like, hear my words. He who does my words does the will of the Father who sent him. The Father entrusts Jesus, his own Son, with the most valuable of possible missions to go on. And what is the mission? To rescue a people for his own pleasure. So they covenant together, and the Father sends the Son. They're in covenant together that the Son willingly goes to lay down his life to redeem a people for his own. Look at Galatians. Verse 4, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So what's the mission? Rescue my children. Bring them into the kingdom. Whose kingdom is it? The kingdom of the beloved son, right? It's Jesus' kingdom. So he sends them to rescue them for them to receive the adoption. What we looked at it last week, Ephesians 2. What were we by nature? Children of wrath, right? We were by nature children of wrath. But what does God do? He sends his son Jesus to lay down his life, to shed his blood, to die on the cross. Why? So that we could be redeemed. Jesus makes the payment for us. He pays it. A payment that we really couldn't make, but he pays it. And what does he get for it? He gets an inheritance, which is us. So he brings us into the kingdom. That's back in Colossians 13 and 14, right? God transfers us. He transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is what Jesus has earned. That is a proper word to use. He has earned the salvation for us that we couldn't earn on our own. No works. Not possible. Why? We're objects of wrath. We're dead in our sins. What can dead men do? Nothing. Dead men can't do anything. So the Father entrusts the Son with this rescue mission to redeem a people for his own, those that he had chosen from before the beginning of time. One more thing the Father does. Look at John 17. It says in John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And then notice his language here. Look, look at this word that he uses. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I mean, I mean, this is a prayer, right? It's called the priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying that the father would glorify him. Again, this would be blasphemy unless Jesus was on the same same status, the same plane, unless Jesus was God. I mean, to pray, glorify me? Think, if you go into your quiet time sometime, I mean, don't ever pray that, okay? <laughs> Lord, glorify me. No, quite bad. But why can Jesus do it? Because he's God, right? So glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. So the father longs and delights in glorifying his son. And what does the son delight in, in doing? Glorifying the father. 
I mean, they're glorifying one another. It, I mean, it's a beautiful picture. There's selflessness abounds in the Trinity. They delight in glorifying the other members. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So the Father delights to glorify the Son. And we see here at at the very end of this passage, glorify me, verse 5, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you when? Before the world existed. So, I mean, we have Jesus claiming to exist before the world existed. A claim of deity. And and remember what it says in Isaiah 42. We're not going to look at it, but I'll just read it. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. God doesn't hand out his glory to anyone. But it is most appropriate to give it to the Son if the Son is God. And it's most appropriate for the Son to give it back to the Father because the Father is God. The Son delights to glorify the Father. So it's, it's not a surprise that Paul now uses language that encapsulates the high view that the Father has. He is the image of the invisible God. What does this mean? I mean, aren't, aren't we his image? Aren't we created in his image, right? So it harkens back. Again, I, I talked about it last week. Like the Colossians, in order for some of this to really make sense to them, they would have had to know their Old Testament, Right? And so likely, uh, verse 7 in Colossians, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So Epaphras has been doing the work of a good teacher, and he's been instructing the Colossians. Hopefully they've been, they've been pouring over the scriptures themselves as well. I'm sure they have. So this harkens back to Genesis 127. Look at Genesis 127. Uh, in verse 26 of chapter 1, Genesis, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's, it's a reference back to Genesis here. We were created in the image of God. But here's the thing. Jesus already was the image of God. We were created in the image of God. Jesus always existed as the image of God. It wasn't like something was bestowed upon him or a special moment came. No. From before all eternity, he was and is and always will be the image of God. So before man was made in the image of God, Jesus already was the image of God. This image existed before the beginning of time. So Paul is making a more defined point, not just observing that Jesus is the image of God, just just like everyone else. No, one author said, to say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. 
And this is only true of Jesus. This is only true of Jesus. Another author said, As the first title of majesty, image emphasizes Christ's relation to God. The term points to his revealing of the Father on the one hand and his preexistence on the other. It is both functional and ontological. What are we seeing here? What we're seeing is that Jesus has supremacy before creation. Supremacy before creation. Everything that he is, he always was, always is, and always will be. So when it goes on, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The mention of the firstborn of all creation, again, that takes us back to Genesis. In fact, we're at the very beginning verses of Genesis, the very first one, in the beginning. So they they see the, the firstborn of all creation. What are we thinking? Well, we'd be thinking, really, the first creation. And guess what? Jesus was there. He was already there. He didn't just pop onto the scene. He and the Father and the Spirit eternally coexisted. So Jesus has supremacy before creation. When it says in the beginning, yeah, well, I mean, Jesus is before that word in. He's already there. This is Jesus' eternal status of being the image of God. He didn't earn it. He didn't acquire it. It is the eternality of the Son. In John 8, he says in verse 58, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, he attests to his own preexistence before he became a man. And look at Philippians just briefly. Philippians chapter 2. It says in verse 5, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he's in the form of God. But what does he do? He empties himself. And he takes on the form of a servant. What about Jesus' own words about himself? Well, we've already seen in John 17 how he's praying to the Father for him to glorify him. But what's the title that he uses in the Gospels over and over to refer to himself? The Son of Man. 84 times in the Gospel. Always and only by Jesus himself talking about himself and there's only one other time it's in acts when stephen is is talking about the messiah that he mentions and refers to him as the son of man but what is this son of man sometimes again some skeptics try to use well he just thought he was just like a son of man he was the son of joseph again that's misunderstanding it's a messianic title that he's referring to himself and the pharisees know very well when he applies it to himself, especially at the end when they're ready to crucify him. But look at Daniel so we can see the context of how, where Jesus gets this title from. So we're in Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Okay, so there we get that title, son of man. And look what happens in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Then it goes on even more. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus says, that's me. That's me. Look what he says. We'll see it, we'll see it <clears throat> and we'll see the reaction of the Pharisees in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we'll start in verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now we just read it in Daniel. How does, how does that Son of Man come? In the clouds of heaven, right? He's making that reference here. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Look at the reaction of the high priest, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. The high priest wasn't stupid. He knew exactly what Jesus just said. I am that son of man that Daniel talks about. He is claiming the divinity. He is claiming to be the very thing that Daniel saw in his vision. That's why he tears his rope. He's uttered blasphemy. So he says, what is your judgment? Verse 66, they answered, he deserves death. This is Jesus, the one who claims to be the Son of Man, the one who claims to be the one in Daniel spoken about, who has the everlasting kingdom where all people will come and serve him. Let me conclude with a couple thoughts. All the other religious leaders, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tzu, I mean, the list could go on and on and on and on. This description here in Colossians only fits one person who has ever walked this earth, and that's Jesus. And no other, no other major religious leader has ever claimed a single one of these attributes or descriptors. And not only did they not claim it, not a single one applies to them. It only applies to Jesus. Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. And then it says he is the radiance of the glory of God. I mean, he's just radiating God's glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The exact imprint of his nature. This is only true of Jesus. Listen, you can't think of Jesus more highly than you possibly can. You can think wrongly about him. You can think less of him. But he is God. Set your hearts on this. We're going to get to it later in Colossians where it says to set our hearts on things above. Set your hearts on this passage because this is the above stuff that Paul's talking about. Set your heart on that passage. Let that take you to the lofty heights to see how amazing and beautiful and glorious Jesus is. He is God. He is supreme. He has supremacy even before creation. Look at Philippians. We're going to close with this. Back in 2. We we finished verse 7 in chapter 2. Let's pick it up in 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like mission accomplished, right? He accomplishes the mission that the Father sent him to do. Is there one thing that you can name that God told Jesus to do that he didn't do? No. Perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. I mean, can we even claim that for even possibly one day? I don't think so. Perfect obedience. Yet day after day after day for 30 some plus years on the earth, Jesus, perfect obedience. Why? Well, really, for the Father's glory. To fulfill the mission. And also, for us. He did it really for the Father, but he also did it for us. He did it out of obedience and love for the Father, but he also did it to redeem us for his own. To be a part of that kingdom that we read about in Colossians over and over. The heavenly kingdom, that's Jesus' kingdom. So it goes on. So he, he does those things, verse 8, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Think about that. I mean, bowing, I mean, what does that signify? Like you're in the presence of greatness. So he highly exalts him. He bestows on him the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee bows. Every knee. Listen, to one day every knee will bow. That's what it says. One day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let me just say, just as a quick little uh, insert here, uh, make sure your knee is bowing willingly now. Make sure you've submitted to Christ and you've trusted in him. Because one day, whether you want to or not, you will bow. That's the truth. But make it willingly now so that you're a part of his kingdom. That you're not the object of wrath by nature, but by nature you're an object of love. You're adopted into his kingdom. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So all this happens 
right? God exalts him. He bestows on him a name. People are bowing. Everyone's confessing Jesus is Lord. And what is it to? The glory of God the Father. God will be glorified on that day. He will be greatly glorified, and so will the Son. Both will be greatly honored and glorified. Brothers and sisters, let's make sure we are ready for that day. Let's anxiously await it and keep putting our hand to the plow and not looking back and pressing on. We have a great ending in store. <clears throat> our ending on this earth, might it's going to be, for each one of us, a little bit different. It might not be the greatest ending. I don't know. Uh, in the way we go out. But guess what? If we know the king, then we're going to be in his kingdom. And guess what? <clears throat> the, the king who's, who, who, who owns this side of the land of the river also owns the other side of the land of the river, right? right. We're crossing that river. We're going to his kingdom. He owns that land too. Let's make sure we cross the river faithfully and we're there to cross it. Yeah. All this is to God's glory. All of it to God's glory. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do walk with us on this side of the river. You are faithful to be with us. You walk with us each step of the way. And we glorify your name, Father. We glorify it in worship. We glorify it, Lord, through our, our words of confessing who you are, of singing with our lips, of working with our hands, God, of walking in obedience to you. And we thank you that you've glorified the Son and you've shown us, Lord, exactly what you think about your own precious Son. And he truly is the beloved son. Thank you, Lord, that you call us the beloved and that you bestow upon us love after love after love, love upon love upon love. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for your perfect obedience day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, to the point of shedding blood for us, laying down your life and dying, and that you had the power over the grave and therefore we can have power over the grave. You have life and eternal life, and it is yours to give eternal life to us, which you do. Thank you, Jesus. You truly are a good and gracious God. We love you. Amen.